announcement that was uh, missed earlier, I'll just share with you uh, now, is that the MCC sale is on September the 6th, or is that the 16th? 20, 20. Oh, pardon me, that's a 2, the 26th, September the 26th in Brandon. Please order your pork sausages by contacting Henry Taves before September 13th, and uh, you can talk to him or Art Friesen if you have any questions in that regard. So the sale is September the 26th, and the deadline to order is September the 13th, so please take note of that. Now, I feel I need to apologize to Daryl. I, I sprang those extra pictures on him, and I'm assuming that that was the root of uh, the technical glitch we had this morning, so I'm sorry for that, Daryl. Uh, the context for our, the setting for our story today is uh, a place in Israel that I had the, the opportunity to visit while we were over there. The, the cave where Saul uh, was sleeping in, where David had the opportunity to take his life, is at a place called En Gedi. And I think we have the pictures up now. So En Gedi is just on, if you can picture in your mind a map, the Dead Sea in the southern part of the country. It's just on the west side of the Dead Sea. There's, a, there's a, basically an oasis. In the middle of the wilderness, there's a spring, a beautiful waterfall that feeds this lush oasis. And this place was called En Gedi. And it was during uh, David's running away from Saul, him pursuing him through the wilderness, that he took refuge here. Uh, one of the things you'll notice in the Bible's description of it is it is described as a place where the goats, the mountain goats, resided. And when we were visiting there, sure enough, they're still there to this very day. Uh, there you can see Leanne's standing there. She's got her, her lovely walking boot on. And uh, behind her you can see there's a stream and there's waterfalls uh, trickling throughout there. So it's a beautiful place. And as we're walking along, Along the walls of the, the mountainside beside you, you could just see caves all over the place. There's more than one. There's multiples. And so it was pretty neat to be walking through history, as it were, and looking up and thinking, maybe it was that cave, or maybe it was that one. No one knows exactly which cave it was. However, uh, right here, you can see there's a rather large cavern. This is where the mouth of the, the stream that fed the waterfall was coming down from. And I believe in the next picture, uh, you'll see... Yeah, there's a, a massive cave right next to the waterfall itself, which very well could have been the, the cave in which our story took place today. So I just wanted to show those to you at the beginning of the sermon this morning to give you just a little bit of a visual context of the exact location where these events uh, took place. I know for myself, there's, there's this disconnect often between what we visualize as we read the scripture and the reality of what it is. And so for myself... Being able to be in Israel and connect those two things together just brought a new level of reality for myself to these events, and so I hope you get a little feel of that this morning as we begin the sermon. The events that we're going to be examining this morning are some of the most dramatic in all of Scripture. We're going to be tracking over a, a vast, well not a vast period of time, but uh, a number of incidents happen in this period of time from 1 Samuel chapter 22 right through to Samuel 24. This is the period where David and his men are fleeing through the wilderness and Saul is pursuing them at every turn. And there are some horrific events that happen in this period of time which we're going to examine this morning, as well as amazing events of mercy and valor as we also heard in our text today. As we begin uh, to enter, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that as we hear from your word as we study it, we're not just studying cleverly devised fables, 
We're not looking at just allegories or, or moral stories that can help us live a better life. We're truly studying history. We're studying actual events that took place in time and place that you intervened, that you worked, and that you uh, even did miracles. And so, Father, I pray that the reality of that would sink in this morning. Father, I also pray that as we enter your word, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit to our context today, that whatever we're facing, whatever we're, we are dealing with, that your truth would apply and that we would take it to heart, that we would be people who would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. And so, Father, as we come to you as uh, your people today, we also bring with you our many concerns, our, our, our baggage, our distractions, our sins. And so, Father, we just take this moment to lay those down at the cross. We confess our sins to you. We ask you, Lord, to renew us, forgive us, and give us, Lord, the opportunity now to enter into further obedience to you. And so, Lord, as we, as we uh, hear from you, may we receive it uh, humbly, graciously, and may we obey. Bless this word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Kill them. Kill them all. The order hung in the air, but no one moved. No one even dared draw a single breath. It was as though time had stopped and everyone had momentarily stepped into a nightmare from which they would soon awaken. But if only it were a nightmare. For the madman who stood before them was all too real. Clad in perfectly fitted armor with spear in hand, he towered over everyone else around them. His mere presence made even courageous men to shrink back. His sudden fits of murderous anger and rage were legendary, and now it was as though he was possessed by the devil himself. Had he really just given the order to have all of the priests of the Lord killed? Looking into the tyrant's eyes, Abathar felt his blood run cold. The eyes were devoid of humanity. Only murderous evil resided there. Abathar wanted to turn and run, but there was a madman standing before him. There was no escape. And this man had ordered the death of not only the high priests of God, but his own father. For there, standing directly before the man who had just ordered his death, was his father. Firm and resolute, Ahimelech, the high priest of Israel, did not shrink back like the other men. He did not grovel. He did not beg for mercy. Instead, he stood courageously with his chin held high. He had spoken his peace before the king. He had made his case and now he waited for his fate. Abathar felt his own courage begin to return at the mere sight of his father. Seeing his courage filled him with courage of his own. Was there ever such a man as his father? Who would dare to strike down a man of God, the high priest of the nation? A long moment passed as the king glowered over his men. His order still hanging in the air. Kill them, kill them all. His bravest warriors lowered their heads, but none moved to obey. To strike down a priest of the Lord in cold blood was an evil that even they, as hardened soldiers, were simply not willing to do. Abathar felt hope beginning to rise. Certainly the king would now reconsider his rash and evil order. But instead of revoking his order, King Saul turned to the foreigner, Doeg, the Edomite. His presence was like that of a rat in human form. The very man who had betrayed them to the king by telling him that the priests had given assistance to David when he had fled now stood there ready to do the king's bidding. 
pointing directly at Doeg, King Saul's voice again cut through the air like a knife. You turn and strike down the priests. Immediately, Doeg bowed his head, unsheathed his sword, and stepped forward. Abathar recoiled in horror. Would he really do it? Would he really murder the high priests? But once again, his father Ahimelech did not so much as flinch. He stood there before his would-be executioner and calmly looked him in the eye. Doeg's eyes flashed with murderous intent as he raised his sword to strike. Abathar couldn't bear to watch, but he couldn't look away. As if in a trance, he saw the sword thrust forward. He saw his father stagger, then fall, and he watched as the blood began to soak the ground. Every last man, even King Saul's soldiers, couldn't believe it. The high priest of Israel, dead, murdered by his own king. And now his blood cried out for vengeance. But Doeg was far from finished. With increased speed, he turned to the next priest, and again the blade flashed, and again the man of God fell. And again his blood soaked the ground beneath him. Overcome now by a murderous lust for blood, Doeg continued to carry out his orders with zeal, striking down one priest after another after another. As the slaughter continued unabated, King Saul simply stood there and watched the horror unfold at his command. And suddenly, with no concern for his own safety, Abathar found himself running to his father's side. Cradling his head in his arms, he instinctively knew that his father was already gone. It suddenly dawned upon him that with his father's death, the mantle of high priest of Israel now belonged to him. Quickly and tenderly, Abathar unfastened the jeweled ephod worn on his father's chest. In the background, the screams of women and children could now be heard. Doeg had finished with the men and had now entered into the town to carry on the slaughter. Every last woman, child, infant, cattle, donkey, and sheep were being put to death by his blade. Abathar looked up at King Saul. He would pay for what he had done. With God as his witness, one way or another, vengeance would be realized. Then taking his father's ephod, Abathar simply began walking, then running until he felt he could run no more. The sound of the slaughter began to fade behind him as the last of the cries were silenced. But as fast as he ran, he could not leave the images of what he had seen behind him. He would find David. He would do whatever was within his power to help David become king. Someone is coming. Quiet. The whispered order hissed down the dark walls of the cave. Abathar could feel his pulse quicken, but outwardly he remained calm and composed. Many months had passed since that fateful day, and much had changed. In the blink of an eye, he had gone from being still a boy, serving under his father's tutelage in the tabernacle. His sole purpose was to serve before God, to serve his father well and to one day become a high priest himself. But now, everything had changed. He had become the sole surviving priest of Israel, charged with carrying forward all of the priestly duties before God on behalf of the nation. But there was just one small problem. He was a fugitive. And not just any fugitive. He had cast in his lot with 600 of the most dangerous outlaws in the land, headed by none other than the giant slayer himself, David, the son of Jesse. And during this time in the wilderness, they had been chased by Saul and his army from one corner of the land of Israel to another. 
Using all of their skill, all of their cunning, and with God's help, they had always managed to stay just one step ahead. They had crossed deserts, hidden in mountain fortresses, forests, and even taken refuge in Philistine cities. But now, holed up in the caves of Engedi, they were finally trapped with no way out. It was just a matter of time until their hiding place was discovered and they were smoked out. Suddenly, the sound of a rock tumbling down could be heard, and a momentary flicker of light signaled that someone had entered the mouth of the cave. The men pressed even lower to the ground and collectively held their breath. The slightest sound, whether the clank of a spear against a shield, a sneeze, or even a whisper, could be their undoing. Clear footsteps could now be heard, and then voices. It immediately became clear that whoever had entered the cave was not searching it, they were simply using it for a brief respite. Abathar felt himself relax ever so slightly. And after a few minutes, David sent forward a scout to investigate. When the scout finally returned, his report rippled through the men like lightning. King Saul has entered the cave alone to rest. He is at our mercy. Abathar's thoughts soared. His spirit within him soared with the thoughts of vengeance. Could the Lord truly have been so gracious as to deliver Saul directly into David's hand? Abathar believed with all his heart that David was God's anointed, that he would be the next king of Israel. And as such, it was only fitting that God's judgment against Saul would come at the hand of David. That the blood of Ahimelech and all the slain priests of Israel that cried out from the ground would finally receive justice. He envisioned that all David would have to do was carry Saul's severed head out of the cave and Saul's own soldiers would bow down and pledge allegiance to David. The very next day, he, Abathar, high priest of Israel, was stored, would anoint David as king, and the dark chapter of history under Saul's reign of terror would come to an end once and for all. That was how he envisioned it playing out. But as he and the men looked at David with anticipation, David remained motionless. He would not move. It was as though he was transfixed in place, deep in thought and troubled. Finally, one of David's generals whispered loudly, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he told you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And seemingly convinced by those words, David was stirred into action. Slowly, he unsheathed his sword and silently crept forward towards the mouth of the cave. The image of the angel of death flashed across Abathar's mind. For just as the Pharaoh of Egypt had felt God's judgment, so too would King Saul this very hour. But as he and the men strained to hear the sound of the fatal blow hit home, instead they heard nothing. The minutes dragged on, but not a sound could be heard. Even in the darkness, Abathar could sense that something was amiss. Something was terribly wrong. Finally, David returned. He could tell that he was deeply, deeply troubled. They still sat there, motionless, trembling. And finally, he held up what was in his hand. It was a piece of Saul's royal robe. Even in the darkness, Abathar could sense how deeply moved David was. Why had he not struck him down? How could David have shown mercy to the very man who had tried to spear him three times, the very man who had on countless occasions chased him through the wilderness like a rabid dog that needed to be put down, the man who had slaughtered the priests of the nation? 
had David lost his nerve. It was becoming clear now that some of David's generals were inclined to go and finish the job that David would not or could not do. But then David's hushed but urgent voice carried over them. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Abathar was stunned. For all the evil that Saul had done, David would not put himself in the place of God to judge the one who God had anointed as king. David was repaying Saul's treachery with kindness. And to the merciless tyrant, David was showing a mercy the likes of which Abathar had never before known. As we pause on this scene, this dramatic unfolding of what we just heard in Scripture, I want you to just pause for a moment, close your eyes, and put yourself in the place of Abathar. Just try to imagine... Had you been in his shoes, had you witnessed this tyrant king slaughter your own father and all of the priests of the nation, after all of that, what would you have been feeling? What would you have been thinking in that very moment? The desire for justice and for vengeance, the thirst to make Saul pay for his crimes must have been so powerful. And then try to imagine what it would have been like to have been David that day. The very man who has tried to take your life more times than you can remember is completely and utterly at your mercy. The temptation to take matters into your own hands must have been so incredibly strong. David could have in one blow finished off the king, finished off the hunt, finished off his, all of his days as a fugitive. He could have returned triumphant to Jerusalem and been anointed king the very next day had he just gone through with it. And yet David stays his hand. It was not because he had lost his nerve. He had killed more men than we could even bear to recount. That was not the reason David stayed his hand that day. David stayed his hand because he decided to show mercy to a man who deserved no mercy. And in doing so, he showed us a picture of what God is like. And so here we see a number of lessons that we can draw out of the story for ourselves today. The first thing is that David's mercy towards Saul shows us a picture of God's mercy towards you and I. Oh sure, you and I aren't murderers or tyrants like Saul, at least I hope not. And yet, like Saul, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all disobeyed God. We have all rebelled against him at some point in our lives or another. And so, like Saul, we are all equally deserving of God's judgment upon sin. Now, as unpopular as talking about God's judgment is in a time when no one is allowed to say that what anyone else is doing is wrong, the culture tells us that what you want to do is okay if it's all right for you, then no one else can say otherwise. We don't want to hear that there are absolutes, that God's word still stands, that sin will be judged. And yet the truth remains that one day God will judge all sin and all sinners. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 states this, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I want you to take a look at the world around you right now. Is God's truth being suppressed? I would say the answer is yes. 
is what we would hold as being right now being told that it's wrong, and what, what we would hold as being wrong being touted as being the thing that is right, in many, many places it is in our world right now. And God says that the day is coming where his judgment will be poured out upon that wickedness. And so just like for Saul, one day this world will receive the judgment it, deser- it deserves. And that's the bad news. But the good news is this. That just as David showed incredible mercy to Saul, God has shown incredible and undeserved mercy towards us as well. I want you to listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. He writes this, When we were utterly helpless, utterly helpless, Picture Saul taking a nap, utterly helpless. He doesn't even know that the sword of the very man he is pursuing is hovering above him. Picture that, utterly helpless. This is a picture of us, utterly helpless. And so many people in the world today are just like Saul, sleeping in their sin, oblivious to the fact that the sword of judgment is hanging above them. That eternity is waiting where they will have to answer before God, and yet there they lie, peacefully asleep in their sin. This is how we were at one time when we were lost. Uh, Paul says, when we were just like that, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. You see, just as Saul was helpless before David, we are utterly helplessly lost in our sins, unable to free ourselves. And it was in that helpless position that Jesus rescued us by taking the wrath, the judgment, the condemnation that our sins deserved upon himself. Every last drop of God's righteous judgment was poured out upon him as he died on the cross of Calvary. And there Jesus shed blood, made atonement for you and me. There's a beautiful, simple word in scripture that describes this perfectly. It's called grace. Grace. It's the most beautiful word. It's a word that rings in my ears and thrills my heart. If it wasn't for grace, condemnation is all that we would deserve. Grace greater than our greatest sin. This is a gift that must be freely given, and it is a gift that must be freely received. And it begins with sincere and simple repentance. Repentance is simply telling God that I'm sorry for my sins. It begins with confession. It says, forgive me, Lord. Cleanse me. Give me the power to turn away from my life of sin and towards you. You see, when David did this incredible act of mercy towards Saul... Saul leaves the cave. We know how the story unfolds. David uh, exits the cave behind Saul. He holds up the robe and he calls out to Saul and says, My lord, the king. And he goes on to defend his case. How could I have anything against you when your life was in my hands? Here's the robe. 
that I kept from, from your side as you were sleeping? How could you say that I am your enemy when I could have taken your life and I've spared you? And in that moment, Saul is convicted. He calls out in, in repentance. He said, David, is that you? You are far more godly than I. May the Lord reward you for your righteousness. And he repents of his wickedness that day. But we all know that his repentance is short-lived. Very soon thereafter, he is again out in the wilderness pursuing David, looking to end his life. That is a picture of so many Christians today. We are shown our sin, we are shown the error of our ways, we are convicted. We hear a sermon, we are doing devotions, we know we've done something wrong, and we say, oh Lord, I'm a sinner, forgive me, I confess it, I'm turning away from it. And the very next day, the very next week, we're right back at it. We haven't truly repented. We haven't truly turned away from our sins. We've acknowledged it, we've confessed it, but we haven't changed our behavior. This is what Saul did. And we need to take it as a warning for ourselves. When we are convicted of our sins, when we know we've done something wrong, to simply confess it and then go right back to it is not repentance at all. Saul did not truly repent. And we need to learn from his, his mistake and recognize that if we are going to truly repent of God, we have to change our behavior. We have to turn away from it and towards God and living life His way. And so we need to understand that though guilt and remorse need to happen, it is not enough without following through in the change of behavior. And so we must recognize that true repentance is not just verbal, it's physical. We must turn away from the sin, actually stop doing it, and turn towards God. The second lesson we learn from this morning's story is that David's showing mercy towards Saul is a perfect picture of how God wants us to treat other people, even and especially our enemies. I want you to right now just take a moment to consider who is the one person in your life who has hurt you the most? Who is the one person that you would say is classified in the category of enemy? You just don't like them. You can't stand them. They've done something to you. They've rubbed you the wrong way. And you just... You just don't like that person. And whatever they've done to you, you just won't let it go. You harbor that resentment, that grudge. You polish it up. You put it on the shelf and you look at it. And you say, yeah, I'm, I am going to hold on to that the rest of my life. I will never forgive that person for what they've done, for who they are. I just can't stand the sight of them. Who is that person? Maybe more than one comes to mind. Maybe no one comes to mind. And, and that's a good thing. But if you're not sure if there's someone in that category in your life, even if someone briefly crossed your mind, someone that you hold resentment against, then it's probably a pretty good chance that there's still unfinished business that you need to deal with. That there's some sort of resentment, bitterness, or grudge that's still hanging on. And I want, I want you to know today that if you have that in your life, guess what? God wants you to be rid of it. God wants you to take whatever you've got sitting on the shelf and throw it away right now, today. I want you to listen to Colossians 3, verse 13. Make allowance for each other's faults. What does that mean, make allowance for each other's faults? That's a powerful statement. Basically, what it's saying is, accept the fact that we are all sinners, that we all have faults. And if you want other people to recognize that, hey, I'm not perfect, 
Why are we expecting other people to be perfect? Make allowance for each other's faults. Within a church body, we have to make allowance for each other's faults because none of us here is perfect, myself included. We must graciously allow that we're not all perfect, that there's going to be things that rub each other the wrong way sometimes. We have to make allowance for that. And then it goes on to say, and forgive anyone who offends you. This again is going almost without saying. The implication here is is that there are going to be times that people offend you. There are going to be times that people hurt you. That is a given. So the command is forgive. And it doesn't just say forgive some of those who offend you. It says forgive anyone who offends you. That's everyone. And then he goes on to say, Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. That ups the ante right there, doesn't it? The contingency of our forgiveness of others is now equated to God's forgiveness of us. So just as God's forgiven us, we are expected now to forgive others in the same way. And now the chances are pretty good that the person or persons that came to mind that you haven't yet forgiven, the the chances are pretty good that that person didn't try to skewer you to the wall three times with a spear. Right? The chances are pretty good that that person didn't chase you through the wilderness with his army. The chances are pretty good that that person didn't slaughter your family or kill the high priests of God. They're pretty good. So if David was able to show mercy to a madman, to a tyrannical king like Saul, what excuse do we have to not show mercy to those who have wronged us? And even more, if Christ has forgiven our sins against him, against God, the perfect creator, the king of kings and lord of lords, if he's forgiven us for falling short of God's glory, how can we not forgive those who have sinned against us? And this is doubly true within the church family. There is no room for grudges or resentment or unforgiveness to linger unresolved within the family of God. As we learned last fall in Sunday school from John John Bevere, that just as Saul was God's anointed, so too each child of God is anointed by God's Holy Spirit. And so just as David refused to strike out against God's anointed, we too must refuse to strike God's anointed as well. Remember, as Jesus said, they will know we are Christians by how we love one another. And so if grudges, resentment, or unforgiveness of any type are here with you this morning, let me encourage you today, leave them at the cross. For those who have received mercy must show mercy. This is God's word, and it is very clear to us today. Let us follow the example of David as he showed mercy to Saul. Even though it was undeserved, God blessed him for it, and God vindicated him in the end. May we trust God to vindicate us, that his justice is perfect. And that whatever vengeance or, or revenge or bitterness that we think that we can hold over and above God's, God's perfect justice, we need to leave it with him. We need to choose to forgive and leave the consequences for others' sins in the Lord's hands. For the Lord knows what he's doing, and we can trust him with it. So let us do so today. And may we, as a collective body of Christ here in Clarny, set this example for a watching world. May we be people characterized by mercy and forgiveness. May we be something that the community can point to and say, you know what, that church isn't like 
the others. They're not the, they're not the hypocrites who are going around holding grudges, seeking, seeking petty arguments or, or holding things from the past against others. That is a church that forgives and moves forward. And so may we be that kind of a body here in Killarney. May we show the mercy of Christ to a town who's watching what we do even today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy towards us. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you that by his stripes we are healed, that your blood has washed away our sin. But Lord, even as we were reminded here this morning, we are, each one of us, guilty of having rebelled against you. We are guilty of sinning, whether outwardly or inwardly, in our thoughts, in our hearts. And that, Father, that even as we confess those sins, we recognize, Lord, that we have a tendency to be like Saul. We have a tendency to confess, but then to carry on as though nothing had changed. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to change this faulty way of thinking. Help us to understand and embrace what true repentance is. That repentance is to not only confess, but it is to turn away and to change our behavior. To stop living in the sin, to stop living in the rebellion, to turn towards you and follow your way and your path for our lives. Father, we recognize that in this we are so weak. Our flesh, Lord, is so fickle. We so quickly turn away from you, even though our spirits desire to obey you, Lord. In our flesh, sometimes the temptations are just too strong and we give in. And so, Father, we recognize that none of this is possible without your power working within us. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for a full measure of your power. O oh, Lord, not only to convict us of sin, but to empower us to live for righteousness, to live holy lives set apart for you. And so, Father, give us humble hearts as we rely upon you each day to walk free from sin and to live fully and wholly for you. And so, Father, as we do this, we pray that we would also follow David's example, that we would repay evil with kindness. That to those who are merciless, we would show mercy. And that, Lord, even right now, if you have convicted someone's heart here today of someone who they are harboring a grudge against, who they are holding unforgiveness towards, Lord, I pray that right now you would give freedom to say, I choose to forgive. I choose to let go all thoughts of vengeance or revenge. I even, Lord, even now, choose to ask you to bless that person. And that knowing full well that you will deal with them in your own perfect way. And so, Father, I pray that if it even be possible, that restoration of relationships could happen as a result. That reconciliations could take place. And that, Lord, through this, we could be a shining witness to the world around us. That there is a different way from walking through broken relationships. Whether that's in marriages and families and friendships and workplaces. Lord, there is a different way. And that your word has shown us the way. Your perfect example has given us the power, O oh Lord, to forgive others just as you, have, as you have forgiven us. And so help us to do so to, today, Lord, to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.